If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. The year is 2022, and the news media most of us grew up with is all but dead. Advancements in technology have forever altered the nature of news and political news coverage. Network, cable, and online news organizations value speed over accuracy and cater their reporting to specific ideological and demographic groups. They lean hard into storylines that stimulate their base and avoid reporting stories that run counter to their preferred narratives. The result is an ever-expanding partisan divide within an inadequately informed populace. A cultural civil war is brewing. Two rogue journalistic purists stand opposed and have dedicated themselves to protecting journalistic integrity and the relentless pursuit of truth. Their names are Liz Habib and John Ziegler, and this is their podcast, The Death of Journalism. Welcome to episode number 37 of the Death of Journalism podcast. I am your host, John Ziegler. Later on in this episode of the podcast, I'll finally delve into the live golf controversy and its direct connection to the presidential race. I'll explain later on. But first, I'm going to start with the latest in that presidential race. And let's be clear about this. I realize that it is now March of 2023 and we're a long way from even the first caucus or primary on either the Republican or Democratic side, assuming there even is a race on the Democratic side, which I don't think there will be. I believe it'll be Joe Biden who will be the nominee. And it seems really early to be obsessing about this, but folks, I'm telling you, it is not. This is not just the biggest issue facing the country, who will be the Republican presidential nominee in 2024. It's probably the last hope for the country, assuming there even is any hope left for the country. But it's also not too early to be talking about this because major, major developments are happening that are going to impact this this process as it moves forward. And we're able to tell a lot about where we are and where we're heading based upon some pretty obvious tea leaves. And there was an interesting and potentially disturbing tea leaf that was revealed on Fox News Channel earlier this week. Fox News Channel has been criticized by Donald Trump as being in the tank for Ron DeSantis. And he's bitching and moaning about it on Truth Social. Isn't there a big, beautiful network out there to compete with Fox that's always been against me, which, of course, is obviously very much not true, especially in 2016 when Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity basically launched Donald Trump's Republican nominating process campaign and helped him win that nomination because they thought it was going to be good for them, which it was in the short run, although it didn't really work out very well for Bill O'Reilly in the longer run. But I digress. And so the other day on Fox News Channel, on the morning show, Fox and Friends, Brian Kilmeade, who is one of the co-hosts of the Fox and Friends morning show 
and has just done a documentary that has been seen as being very pro Ron DeSantis. He was, uh, I don't know if you would call this a town hall. He was doing a live shot in Ponte Pedro Beach, Florida, which is basically Jacksonville, Florida. I used to live there when I worked very briefly for the PGA Tour, which I'm going to get to later on in this program. And I find it's, it's kind of interesting that this is the home of the PGA Tour because Trump is seen as very anti-PGA Tour and very pro-Live Golf. In fact, I believe he's even getting paid directly by Live Golf for the use of his courses. But here we are just outside of Jacksonville in Florida, which you know theoretically would be Ron DeSantis territory. And they're in a packed diner. And Kilmeade opens up the discussion to the 2024 presidential election. Now, when you hear this clip, I want you to envision a packed diner, mostly older people, though not exclusively older people. And the first thing that is interesting about this clip and telling is that when Kalmeed opens up the discussion of the 2024 election, he doesn't even consider that his audience is concerned at all about the Democratic side of this equation. He understands that this is a purely 100%, literally, Republican crowd. Now, I'm sure that was true, but I don't believe that even 10 years ago that Fox News Channel would have even had that mindset. I mean, Fox News Channel used to have a pretty decent number of Democrats who watched them and might show up at a, an event where they knew Fox News Channel was going to be there. And at Fox News Channel at least pretended to not be a completely Republican-dominated outlet. But now there's not even a pretense. So it's, hey, look, I know everybody here is a Republican. Who do you like? Which guy or woman do you like in the race? That's what Kilmeade asks of the people in this diner and um, in Padre Vigia Beach. And so he he opens it up, and you're going to hear that everybody he asks says that their choice is clearly Donald Trump. And he goes around the room, and there's about, I don't know, I think it's six different people. You're going to hear some other names being said, but I perceive those as the vice presidential nominee for Trump that these people are offering up, uh, whether it's Nikki Haley or or, or Governor uh, Nome in South Dakota, I think is her name is mentioned at one point. But it's clearly everybody is saying Donald Trump is their choice. And eventually, Kilmeade almost desperately finds a, a younger woman I don't know how old she is, but definitely younger than than most of the people in the diner, who is wearing a DeSantis T-shirt. And he goes up to her and asks her, okay, well, what about Ron DeSantis, since no one has mentioned Ron DeSantis' name here in Florida? And she provides a rather weak answer, like, oh, yeah, I like Ron DeSantis, but, uh, you know, I like Donald Trump, too. I'm not really sure I'll go with either one. (laughs) And so... There's a lot I have to say about this clip, but I wanted to set it up. And because it's obviously a video clip and this is an audio podcast, I feel like I had to give a little bit extra description in case you hadn't seen it because it has gone semi-viral for for interesting reasons uh, that I'll get to. But here is what that clip sounded like the other day on Fox News Channel. Hi, Lawrence. 
First off, Metro Dining here. I got a question for you. Ready? All right. 2024. Who's pumped up for the election? All right. Rap, rapid fire. Who's your man? Who's your woman? My man, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Christy, no. Christy, no. Who's your man? Donald Trump. Or woman? Trump. Trump. A lot of Trump fans. Trump and Nikki Haley. And Nikki Haley. Donald Trump and Nikki Haley. All right, so far, a lot of Donald Trump. I see, I see uh, Governor DeSantis. What about President DeSantis? I like it. I like uh, it. Who's your pick? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Trump or DeSantis. I'm either or. Um, so, you're right in the middle. Yes, I What you pumped up for? I am super pumped. I feel like we need a little bit of a break from election to election. There are some fascinating elements and disturbing elements to that clip. It went semi-viral because obviously the Trump fans saw this as a cause for great celebration. That here in literally Ron DeSantis' backyard in front of a host that is seen as pro-DeSantis on a channel that is seen as pro-DeSantis, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know yet, but that's what their cult leader Donald Trump is telling them. Almost everybody said Donald Trump would be their choice. In fact, nobody said somebody else definitively would be their choice other than Donald Trump. And even the one DeSantis person wearing a DeSantis t-shirt wasn't willing to say publicly for sure that they would vote for Ron DeSantis for president. And in fact, they would be just fine with Donald Trump uh, being the nominee. So it was understandable and it was obvious that Trump fans were going to spread this with glee throughout the internet. Now, when I saw this, uh, I, of course, had a a very uh, negative reaction to it because I I believe that if Donald Trump is the nominee, the country is lost for a variety of reasons and there's no going back and that uh, Ron DeSantis is literally the last hope. In fact, I even created a a fictitious Star Wars uh, intro, which you can find on my Twitter feed uh, at, at Sigmund Freud where I I take the text from the opening of episode four, the first Star Wars, and I change it to a a battle between Trump and DeSantis. And the title, instead of A New Hope, is The Last Hope, for you Star Wars fans out there. Uh, Because I really do believe that. This is The Last Hope. It may already be too late, but this is The Last Hope, which is part of why I'm talking about this so much on the podcast, even though we're incredibly early, theoretically, in this process. And there were two main reasons why the clip bothered me so much. I realize that a group of people of an older demographic uh, saying that they are Trump supporters, and you're talking about literally a handful of people, is not significant in and of itself. It doesn't tell you anything. It's literally anecdotal. However, however, it was representative of a couple of different things that I find very troubling and that no one else is going to point out, so I will. I have said previously on this podcast that if I was in the DeSantis camp, literally, and was advising the DeSantis camp, which unfortunately I'm not, one of the things I would do before I ever actually announced for president was I would focus group the hell out of my own Florida Republicans. 
because I have been very concerned that Donald Trump's not-so-secret weapon in this emerging battle between him and Ron DeSantis is counterintuitively the state of Florida. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, Trump obviously lives in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. He's done very well in Florida historically, uh, you know, as a presidential candidate. Um, but more importantly than that, I think that, the, that there is a real concern, if I'm a DeSantis in the DeSantis camp, I'm a, there's a real concern, and this is what I would focus group, that you got a lot of DeSantis people who also like Trump who are going to think that they can have their cake and eat it too. And what I mean by that is they're going to say, well, you know, I, I could go for either of these guys. They're both awesome. But if I go with Trump, I get to keep DeSantis as my governor and I can get Trump as my president. And wouldn't that be the best scenario? Of course, that's a delusional way of looking at things, but that's the nature of humanity and especially within the Republican Party these days. So that is a grave concern to me because if there are enough people in that category, DeSantis is done because he's going to have enough problems dealing with a crowded field in Iowa, which I'll get to momentarily, New Hampshire and South Carolina but assuming he gets through all that and it becomes mano a mano, by the time they get to Florida, that's going to be seen as the ultimate battleground. And if Trump beats the Sanders in Florida, it's over. There's no, there's no argument that you know. Even I would say the Sanders has to drop out because you can't, you can't win your own state by 20 points as governor, run for president, and then get beat in your home state. I mean, even though it wouldn't really impact anything about reality, the perception would be impossible to overcome. And so that, quote unquote, focus group that Fox News Channel ran, this very unscientific, imperfect focus group, was very troubling from that perspective. The second perspective that was concerning, and I tweeted about this, and I, I probably tweeted prematurely about this, but there's still a legitimate point to be made, and so I'll flesh it out here on the podcast, and that is that um, Iowa. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Iowa is a caucus state. Iowa looks as if it will be, once again, the first state on the Republican side in the process. 
Democrats appear as if they are abandoning Iowa. If you, you may recall, in 2020, Iowa was a complete crap show. and They couldn't even get their votes counted. And so to me, uh, you know, if I was DeSantis, especially after watching that scene on Fox News Channel, I might be seriously considering saying, you know, look, people, uh, Iowa and a, and, a, and a caucus is not the way to do this anymore. The caucus system is inherently flawed. It's it's not real democracy. And, you know, I'm going to go focus in, on New Hampshire, where we have our first primary. And the reason why I would consider doing that politically is the clip that you just heard. Now, it would be better if you could see it, but I think you got the sense of it from the audio that even the woman in the DeSantis T-shirt was unwilling in a public forum among a ton of Trump voters to say definitively that she would vote for Ron DeSantis. Now, it's just one person. I realize that, right? And who the hell knows what that person was really thinking. But she was wearing a DeSantis T-shirt. She's in Florida. It's pretty clear to me that this is a person who would be voting for Ron DeSantis if he was running uh, for the Republican presidential nomination. But she was unwilling to say that publicly on national television in front of what she then perceived after what she just witnessed as a whole lot of other Trump fans. Now, why does this matter in Iowa? Well, because Iowa is a caucus state. Now, the way the Republicans do their caucus is different than the Democratic side. The Democratic side is much more public than the Republican side, at least it has been in the past. Uh, you know, Basically, you have to announce who you're in favor of publicly in front of your friends and neighbors on a cold Iowa night if you're on the Democratic side of this, which I've always felt was a very stupid process, especially with the, with the, the phenomenon of peer pressure. We all know how peer pressure impacts a lot of different people in pretty dramatic ways. And I think we, we saw it in that clip with the woman in, in the, the Florida diner. And so when you have a cult-like following, as Trump does, and you know that at the caucus, <laughs> these people are not going to make it a secret who they're in favor of. And when you have to sit there, as you even have to do on the Republican side in the Iowa caucus, for at least an hour or two on this cold Iowa night, it becomes very obvious where the crowd is heading, especially the most vocal of the crowd. And if you are at all hesitant, if you are at all undecided, if you are at all movable, I am concerned that you are going to head towards the cult because of just basic peer pressure. Now, to be clear, on the Republican side, it is a quote-unquote secret ballot. You don't have to declare for whom you're voting. If you did, I'd be, if you did, I would be telling Ron DeSantis in every way possibly I could, stay away from Iowa. Do not go to Iowa. I, I even, I, by the way, you may recall that when I talked about Joe Walsh, former Congressman Joe Walsh, who's now a never-Trump complete sellout, I don't even know what his his politics are anymore. A former friend of mine who who I met with to consult with on his his incredibly long shot presidential campaign back in 2020, I told Joe that he was idiotic 
for putting all of his eggs, not that he had that many eggs, and going up against Trump in the Iowa caucus basket because that was the last place you were going to be able to go up against a cult. And I was right because Joe's only appearance was in Iowa and he didn't even show up in the numbers. Uh, and so there is there is definitely a peer pressure phenomenon here, and uh, even on the Republican side. And so I think Iowa is is a problem. Now, when I tweeted this, I got a lot of um, very telling reactions. The first reactions I got were from angry Trump people. <laughs> I referred to them as a cult, which is weird to me because I've been referring to the Trump forces as a cult for many, many years <laughs> since basically the beginning. Uh, and of course, their reactions always prove that that's exactly what they are. It's a cult. Uh, and and for those who say, well, this isn't the way to persuade people, I, I don't really care. I, I care about who wins. But first of all, I'm not going to persuade anybody. And these people have proven beyond any shadow of a doubt, many, many years ago, many, many times over, that they're not persuadable. They're not persuadable by facts or logic uh, or any sort of argument. They're just not. And so I've given up on that. So I'm just going to tell it like it is. They're a cult. And this is why in Iowa, Donald Trump would be very formidable because cults dominate caucuses, especially if peer pressure is a factor. Now, I also got a lot of reaction from people who are in Iowa, Republicans in Iowa. One guy in particular who who was trying very hard, and for a while I, I was susceptible to his persuasion that, you know, I've got it wrong, that, that Trump is not going to do that well in Iowa because his organization is terrible and that DeSantis will be able to out-organize him and that Iowa is actually a good place for DeSantis because you know, the expectations will be lower. I'm, these are my words. And that you know, this is actually a, a fertile ground for DeSantis to take control of the race, which is in Iowa. Look, I would love to believe that. I do think that there is a, a bit of a misconception in comparing Donald Trump 2016, where he did not do well in Iowa. He finished third in Iowa, almost finished fourth. Uh, if Marco Rubio had gotten a few more thousand votes, he would have overtaken Donald Trump in Iowa, and history might have been very different because I'm not sure that Trump recovers from a fourth place finish in Iowa. But he finished third, and he ended up, ended up uh, you know, from then uh, winning New Hampshire and going on to to win the nomination. And so um, the the reality here is that Donald Trump in 2016 is not Donald Trump in 2024. He wasn't magic then. He hadn't yet won the nomination. He hadn't yet beat the, you know, the, killed the wicked witch of the West, Hillary Clinton. He hadn't been president for four years. And so he's a completely different animal now. And the cult is much stronger than it was then. And I believe it's probably larger. Now, the cult, I still believe, as I was being somewhat optimistic in the last episode of the podcast, is shrinking a bit, but it's not losing its intensity. Those that are still in the cult are still as intense as ever. And I have witnessed this over the last couple of days on social media. And I continue to try to tell myself, this, this, you know, <laughs> Twitter's not real life. Twitter's not real life. Twitter's not real life. I, and I understand that. And I get it. But it's still very obvious to me that the intensity is there. And, and it almost doesn't matter how large the cult is for Trump because 
if it's that intensity, it's, it has that much intensity behind it. And it's clear to me that they already hate Ron DeSantis. Trump has already convinced a, a significant number. I don't know what the number is. I have no way of knowing whether it's 1%, 2%, 5%, 10%. I don't know. But there is a percentage out there of hardcore Republicans who Trump has already been able to convince just by some statements on Truth Social that Ron DeSantis is a terrible guy. There was even an episode outside of a Ron DeSantis book signing in Florida last night that was, I believe, contrived by a woman by the name of Laura Loomer, who's a big Trump supporter, used to work for Project Veritas. She's been an attention whore over the last few years where there were some Trump protesters, the, the Trump protesters showing up at a Ron DeSantis book signing before he has even announced his candidacy. I mean, this is insanity. He's not a candidate yet. And some bozo security guard supposedly told them, I saw the tape, he did say this, I don't know what the source of the information was, that Trump people were not allowed uh, you know, to be there protesting at this uh, Ron DeSantis book event. To me, it felt like the whole thing was contrived and a misunderstanding at at best. But just by virtue of the fact that that happened and got shared a lot online, I'm like, are you kidding me? Here we are. DeSantis isn't even a candidate yet. And (laughs) we're in, you know, then we were still in February of 2023 and and Trump already has some people willing to go protest Ron DeSantis' book signing because they are that pro-Trump. There wasn't a lot of people, but just the fact that this happened is remarkable and telling and disturbing and depressing and an indication that regardless of whether DeSantis can pull this off in the primary, he's going to have so many problems in the general election due to Donald Trump, which I'm going to get to because I I believe I have the only possible solution to this, which I'm going to get to in just a bit. But first, I want to go back to DeSantis specifically and, and the issue of the media and what he has to face from all sides, left-wing media, Trump media, uh, you know, the, the, no one has an incentive for Ron DeSantis to win. And DeSantis seems to understand this. I said this in the last episode, that DeSantis may actually have a better understanding of the modern news media than even even Donald Trump does. And Trump has a tremendous understanding of the news media. I've always felt that that was one of Trump's greatest strengths. And so DeSantis, in his interview with Mark Levin, which I found to be telling, it was a telling interview with Mark Levin. It gave me some hope because Levin is obviously a Trump sycophant. I've told the story before where I used to really admire Mark Levin. He was one of the few radio talk show hosts for whom I had respect when I was in the industry. And be, during the early part of the 2016 Republican presidential campaign, back before it was still, you know, it was, it was still an undecided race and Trump was leading, but he wasn't sure he was going to win. I wrote a column when I was the senior columnist at Mediaite basically listing the conservative media types that I believe had sold out to Donald Trump. And I put Mark Levin on the list. And then I met Mark Levin at a, at a talk radio conference for Talkers Magazine. And, you know, he came up to me. He was very nice about it. We even took a picture together. 
he came up to me and, and he said, uh, John, I don't disagree with what you're saying. I just don't think I belong on the list. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I should give him a little bit more benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was just playing footsie with Trump. Maybe he's not in for the long haul. Well, it turned out I was exactly right. Because nobody sold out worse than Mark Levin did. And yet Mark Levin interviewed Ron DeSantis on Fox News Channel a few days ago and did not press him on Donald Trump. And it was a very favorable interview. And here was Levin... And DeSantis, mostly DeSantis, I believe this clip is almost all DeSantis, if not all DeSantis, uh, talking about the news media and and the challenges that DeSantis faces with regard to the news media and how he handles them in a fairly unique fashion. I think that the corporate press has always had a liberal bias. I mean, you remember President Reagan, it's, I mean, he was just, he could beat him, so it, they couldn't touch him, but they tried. But I think now what you have is, yes, they're motivated by the left, of course, but they've detached from facts entirely, and it's all about the narrative, whatever narrative they can spin. And they know a lot of these narratives are bogus, but what will happen is, by the time we debunk it, some people will probably have believed it. So if they can just get that first shot out, yes, the next day, day after that, people realize that they weren't right. But you know, if 10% believed it, then they think that kind of the damage is done. So I think it's kind of been just lowest common denominator, just letting ideology take over basic ethics. But here's the, the flip side of that. When they attack me, our voters they view that as confirmation that I'm doing a good job because they're like, if he wasn't effective, they would not be coming after him uh, the way he did. I mean, this during COVID, everything we were doing, protect people's jobs, the schools. I remember when we said kids need to be in school, first state to say 100% of schools have to be open. They came after me with reckless abandon. But, you know, the parents here, they were with me. They knew we were doing the right thing. So I think they're in a position, the corporate press, where... The conservative half of the country doesn't believe anything they say anymore, uh, but some of their attacks are so outlandish and so transparently bogus that even some of the people who may not reject them out of hand do realize more and more uh, that they're not shooting straight with them. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And right there you heard one of the reasons why I like Ron DeSantis so much and why I think he is well-suited to be able to handle a general election campaign if the party isn't so splintered that he has no chance because he has already proven that he is willing and able to take the blows, fight back, 
and win. And he wins all the time. It wasn't just that he won with regard to his reelection campaign in Florida by almost 20 points. He has won all sorts of victories literally against the media, specifically against ABC and Disney. He just had a massive win against the, the Walt Disney Company, basically taking away their autonomy and their self-governance in Florida. Now, I do think he might be over playing this a little bit, and understandably so. But look, it plays well with his base of support and Republican base because there are a lot of people out there, including my family, which used to be a very pro-Disney family that now doesn't even go to Disneyland anymore here in Southern California because Disney has so lost their way. And so I, I think it plays well politically. It also shows he can get things done. It shows he has brass balls, that he's not afraid. And you know, here he's taking on a enormous monster. I mean, Disney is maybe the biggest media company there is, and obviously owns ABC, one of the biggest news organizations that there is, both locally and nationally, throughout the United States of America. And it'll be interesting to see how, if at all, ABC's coverage of DeSantis is impacted by this. In the old days, by the way, it would actually chasten ABC because they would feel as if they didn't want to be overtly against DeSantis because it would make them look bad from a journalistic standpoint. I'm not sure that that has any impact anymore. It seems to me as if you can't guilt these people anymore. They really don't care about conflicts of interest. They don't really care about exposing themselves as doing the bidding for their corporate interests. And so, you know, like I said, it'll be interesting to see, but I'm I'm not convinced that that's going to be an easy road for DeSantis. I mean, he probably has just created a giant enemy here in ABC that may have uh, negative implications moving forward. Now, DeSantis has been doing a ton of prominent media interviews, largely because he has this book coming out about freedom, in an interview with Jesse Waters on Fox News Channel. And there were two interesting subjects that I want to play for you. The first deals with Dr. Fauci and how DeSantis has been very critical of Dr. Fauci without ever mentioning Donald Trump's name, although he comes as close as he ever has, at least I have heard him, in this particular response with regard to Fauci and Fauci being accountable because there are a lot of people, including myself, who believe that if Donald Trump has an Achilles heel with the Republican base, it is on this issue of having made Dr. Fauci a superstar and effectively, I believe, handing over his presidency to Dr. Fauci in the middle of the pandemic. And here's what that sounded like on Fox News Channel. You famously called him a little elf that you wanted to shake. Uh, Have you changed your mind with Fauci? He needs to be held accountable. The lab leak, Jesse, the lockdowns, he was wrong. Mass, he was wrong. School closures, he was wrong. He was wrong about the vaccine, saying you wouldn't get COVID if you took it. He was wrong about passports. All these different things he and the whole bureaucracy were wrong about. You know, I'm proud as my term as governor. I talk about it in the book. We fought back against Fauci and all those people on all those issues. And that's part of the reason why Florida is the fastest growing state in the United States and has led the country in net in migration uh, for the last four years. Now, obviously, I agree 100 percent with DeSantis on this. 
But is he going to use this as the sword to slay the Trump monster? And is this sword strong enough to slay the Trump monster? I don't know. Uh, It's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, In a rational world, it, it should end Trump with a huge portion of the Republican base. But the ability of the the Trump base, the Trump cult, to rationalize things in Trump's favor is unprecedented and knows no bounds. I mean, I have seen this constantly, where people who despise Fauci still love Trump, and they do not see that connection. Or they say, you know, if they are pressed on it, they'll say, well, uh, you know, Trump had no option. There were no other options for Trump but to do what he did. And he couldn't have fired Fauci and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just doesn't, rationality doesn't play any role in this. And I will always believe that the biggest global mistake, global mistake that Trump made in the pandemic was putting Fauci on television in a way that was going to make him a superstar and give him far more power than he had in real life. And Trump should have understood this because this is Trump's area of expertise, celebrity, and the power that comes from celebrity. So what the hell was he doing putting a Marxist who was clearly against his own reelection on television in front of massive audiences on every possible news network that was carrying live coverage when there was nothing else on television. People were stuck in their homes for, for months at a time on a daily basis. This made Fauci a superstar. And it was Trump's fatal mistake because Fauci was not just wrong about everything. Fauci clearly had ill intent with regard to Trump. And that's why Fauci is a hero to the left to this day. It doesn't matter that he's been wrong about everything because he was the guy that finally brought down Donald Trump. It wasn't Robert Mueller, wasn't Michael Avenatti, <laughs> who's in jail now. I mean, it wasn't, it was, wasn't all sorts of other people that went after uh, Trump in a way that the left thought was going to be the the silver bullet. Fauci was ended up. Fauci ended up being the guy, and that's why he'll always be a hero on the left. And it's Trump's biggest mistake. And how far uh, DeSantis is willing to take this, I think, is going to be a, a real tell about how this is all going to turn out with regard to the Republican nominating process. Then there's the issue of Trump himself, and Jesse Waters asked. Ron DeSantis directly, which many people have not done, about Donald Trump and Trump's criticism of him. And once again, as DeSantis does almost every time, DeSantis gives an almost perfect answer. And here's what that sounded like on Fox News Channel. All right. Well, former President Donald Trump, definitely thinking about you. Uh, You haven't said a lot. Uh, I know you've heard what he said and you, you can see this collision is coming, can't you? Well, look, Jesse, I mean, you know, he used to say how great of a governor I was. And then I win a big victory and all of a sudden, you know, he had different opinions. And so you could take that for what it's worth. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons I've been successful as governor uh, is I don't really pay attention to a lot of the background noise. I mean, you know, he's obviously a, a big, a big fish, but I get attacked all the time from every different angle and you either put points on the board or you don't. And so I just focus on delivering the wins. And I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, following through on our promises. Yeah, you've done a great job. Don- 
And that response is exactly what I have been suggesting should be the way that DeSantis, at least right now, especially since he's not even officially a candidate, responds to Donald Trump. Respectfully, strongly, scoreboard. Look at the scoreboard. Look at my results. And I don't worry about people criticizing me and then lumping Trump in with everyone else that's attacking him from every possible side, which is true which has also been part of why I've been very pessimistic that DeSantis can somehow make it through this obstacle course, this minefield, and make it through the nominating process and still be viable in a general election, especially when it's obvious that Trump and his supporters are more than willing to not go to bat for DeSantis in a general election. And that's Trump's great, quote-unquote, Trump card. That's his great leverage. And this leads us to the issue of what's Trump going to do with regard to the general election, should he lose the nomination, which, by the way, I I still think is is not the most likely scenario. I don't know what the percentages are right now, but I would still put Trump as the favorite, not by a lot, but he would be the favorite to win the nomination. Uh, You know, if it was man-to-man, I always say that DeSantis would win, but we're not going to get a one-on-one race until it potentially is too late. But it was uh, it was a funny moment on uh, News Nation television the other night. I, I was uh, on the show, the Dan Abrams show, which I'm on, you know, about every other week. And I am on deck, basically, in the bullpen waiting to go on. And Dan does a segment on this topic of the fact that the Republican National Committee is going to demand that everybody who takes the stage in the Republican presidential debates signs a pledge to support the nominee in the general election. And um, Dan did a fantastic job here. Usually when I'm on Dan's show, my segment is clearly the best segment of the hour, (laughs) if I don't say so myself. But that was not the case the other night. My, My segment was very mediocre. The best segment was... Dan interviewing a spokesperson for the Republican National Committee about this issue. And it was very obvious that Dan shared my position that it's absolutely absurd to believe that Donald Trump is going to either sign or abide by any signing of a pledge that he will fully support the nominee in the general election if it's not him. In fact, a Trump spokesperson said Trump will support the nominee because it's going to be him. (laughs) which is not the same thing as saying you're going to support the nominee. And the segment was rather hilarious because Dan understood what the score was and where we were headed with this. And the spokesperson either didn't or was unwilling to acknowledge that publicly. And it was just so obvious that this is, this is a ship heading for an iceberg that this, there's just no way to avoid this or is there? Because I have been thinking about this a lot. And I have said numerous times on this podcast that Megyn Kelly probably nailed it when she was the first person to say that the only way out of this maze, if you will, that's my word, not hers. I don't think she used the word maze. But the only way out of this is for Donald Trump to not be healthy enough to run for the Republican nomination in 2024 or for him to just die. I mean, that's really the only way out of this is for Trump to be out of the picture physically, either because of a major health ailment or because he dies. Otherwise, 
This is always going to be a problem. This is always going to be a massive problem. One that I was reminded of continually on social media over the last couple of days as the Trump cult went after me in ways that were eerily reminiscent of 2016. And and so I don't expect that to happen because, you know, we never get <laughs> that, that kind of situation never occurs when it would actually be good for the, the general public. And Trump seems, despite his very bad health habits, seems to be strong as a horse, especially for his age. And so I am not in any way, shape or form anticipating, nor am I publicly rooting for Donald Trump's physical demise. I'm just telling you the way it is that that would be the most obvious way for there to be a way out of this maze, this trap that the Republican Party currently finds itself in with regard to finding a candidate who can win and unite the party in 2024 against what looks like Joe Biden running for re-election. There is, however, one other scenario. And this is actually an incredibly simple solution, although, you know, legally there, there might be need to be some some uh, you know maneuvering that was pretty uh, deft. I don't know what the laws are on this, but from a purely human self-interest standpoint, there is a way out of the maze. And it's pretty simple. And that is, what is the one thing that Donald Trump desires and understands better than anything else, other than maybe attention? <laughs> other than maybe attention, the answer to that question is obviously money. And so the obvious way out of this, and it, and what, fr- what frustrates me is that there's got to be enough money to do this. There has to be big time DeSantis donors who would be able to easily come up with the cash because it wouldn't take that much. How much? I don't know. But all you would have to do is to pay Donald Trump a certain amount of money to decide you know what? Uh, I'm going to sit this one out. I've done my part. Uh, I don't believe in old people uh, being president. Our current president is too old, and I'm going to withdraw from the race and do other things. So you give him one payment, what it would be, I don't know what it would take, $10 million, $20 million, $25 million, I don't know. Somewhere, I believe somewhere in that ballpark would get Trump's t- attention enough to say, you know what? I don't need to do this at my age, why take the risk of of losing in either the nominating process or the general election? Why bother with the aggravation? And, you know, I could, I could uh, make a profit. I could be, I could be the most profitable campaign in history where I could make all this money for not running. And then you you make a second payment where you, you say, okay, you, you, if DeSantis wins, you get X amount of money. It's another 15, 20, 25 million dollars, whatever it is. So in a fictitious world, you give Donald Trump 25 million dollars to not run, and you say you get another 25 million if DeSantis wins. And then you you leave it at that. And and Trump is out and he's incentivized for DeSantis to win. Or if someone else wins the nomination, whoever it is, the Republican wins the presidency, because I wouldn't even want Trump to endorse DeSantis. I just would want him to stay agnostic, just campaign against Biden. If you're going to campaign or say anything publicly at all, say it against Biden, although I obviously be better if he just went away. Um, I realize none of this is going to happen, (laughs) but I I am just coming up with 
some sort of solution. I try to fix problems, even though oftentimes they're unfixable. And this is what's, again, frustrating about this is I really think this could be done. There's enough money out there that is that is in the hands of the right people who have the incentive to make this happen that I, I just, it's it's incredible to me that there's no indication that anyone is going to try. This is similar, by the way, to my solution to the pandemic. And I, I articulated this at the time. You know, early on in the pandemic, when it became obvious that this was not a real, massive, national emergency crisis, and we weren't all going to die, and that we were overreacting, a couple months into this, I made the proposal. You want to end this thing? You want to end the COVID restrictions right now? Here's how you do it. You buy off black leaders to protest the restrictions. That's all it would have taken. Now, how much money that would have taken, I don't know. Probably in the same ballpark, uh, maybe even less that it would take to buy off Donald Trump. But if the right black leaders, and you throw in, I even propose Dave Chappelle, because, you know, I... Philosophically, I believe that Dave Chappelle, the comedian, was probably against all these insane restrictions. You, you, you pay Dave Chappelle to do a public service or a series of commercials uh, on black talk radio or black television stations, and you buy off a couple of the, the big black protest uh, leaders, you know, the Al Sharptons of the world. You buy them off, and that thing ends instantaneously. The moment that there are significant black protests over mask mandates or school closings or sports closings or later on vaccine mandates. The moment that happens, Democrats cave immediately and the whole thing is over because that would be a threat to the entire political life of the Democratic Party. Because that was how powerful an issue COVID was, that if you you could theoretically have a generational shift in the black vote, which would end Democrats, it would end Democrats if they, in, in most places of the country, if all of a sudden they didn't weren't able to count on 90, 95% of the black vote. And God forbid, uh, you know, they lost more than half of it. They'd really be done. And so... That was the easiest and the simplest and the least expensive way to end the pandemic. But nobody came up with that idea other than me. And that probably would have been perfectly legal. <laughs> there wouldn't have been anything illegal about that. But no one did it. And no one will do this with Trump, even though, again, I really do believe that the money is there to make this happen. And it's the most likely scenario. It's the only solution that's realistic to get us out of this jam, to get us out of this maze. Because I just don't see how it is that at the end of this fight, I mean, the fight hasn't even officially begun and it's obvious the divisions are dramatic and worsening and uh, probably unreconcilable. You know, no matter how much DeSantis tries to take the high road here, uh, and I think he's right to do so now, this is only going to get worse. This is going to end up either in Trump winning the nomination fairly easily or in trench warfare, World War I style. And it's going to get ugly. And I just I just do not see, especially given Trump's personality, how it is that you survive this and you're viable in a general election. I mean, there have been very heated battles before. 
but we've never dealt with one involving a Donald Trump before who has no real self-interest in the party winning in the end. He only cares about himself. And by the way, this is always the biggest problem with regard to the modern media. The right-wing media is really not that incentivized for a Republican to win. They were somewhat incentivized with Trump because he was so entertaining and because his base was such a large part of their customer base. But as much as they like Ron DeSantis, and DeSantis would be fun for a while because he gets crap done, by and large, they're fine with a Biden second term, even though it'd be terrible for the country, because it's good for them. It's good for them content-wise. It's good for them ratings-wise, because it's always better to be on the offense, to be the aggressor, to be the attacker, rather than having to defend your person in office. That's what happened to the left-wing media when Obama was finally elected. They did everything they possibly could to get Obama elected, and then for eight years, their ratings tanked because they had to defend Obama. It's much better when the other person's guy or woman eventually is in office from a from a ratings and content standpoint. So never, ever forget that. Now, as far as Trump is concerned, part of why the Trump, the Trump cult is so loyal to him and why it's not going away is because they think he's being vindicated on everything, including on COVID, <laughs> which is insane. But because uh, he, you know, but what the beauty of a cult is they only remember the good things. They forget the bad things. It's a lot like a family vacation. I'm a big believer that if family vacations happen more than once every summer, people probably wouldn't go on family vacations because they would remember more of the bad stuff instead of the good stuff. (laughs) But you you tend to forget the bad stuff and you only remember the good. You may recall that when we interviewed Greg Callie from Newsmax, my friend who's a, a talk show host on Newsmax in the evenings, and a big Trump supporter, Greg literally could not remember. Could not remember. Almost like he had PTSD. Although that doesn't really impact your memory, but I digress. He he could not remember much of Trump's response to COVID because it's been erased from the memory because they don't like that part of it. So it just never existed. And so, you know, they can vindicate him on the things that they did like. Because he was all over the map. I mean, and Trump understands this. Trump throws everything up against the wall on almost every subject, so that if you like it, you'll take it. If you if you dislike it, you'll forget about it or discard it. It's it's a brilliant it's a brilliant way of doing things when you have a cult following, because the cult will always excuse anything where you're wrong, or and they will only remember really the things that you did that turned out right or where you were vindicated, or they'll rationalize things in your favor. And I have to give some credit to the Washington Post here. You know, I criticize the media, obviously, most of the time on the Death of Journalism podcast. But the Washington Post has actually gone out of its way to vindicate Trump on this, uh, this claim that he or his administration was to blame for the East Palestine trail, train derailment. That has not been found to be the case, according to the Washington Post. And they did some pretty good investigative journalism into this, actual real journalism, and they found and were able to declare rather definitively, nope, despite what Chuck Schumer, 
the Senate Majority Leader is trying to claim Donald Trump and his administration are not to blame for the East Palestine train derailment. So they, you know, a lot of Trump people are saying, aha, see, the evil media is out to get us and Trump was right again. But the biggest, most recent story where Trump is being given a lot of credit for being right and being vindicated is, of course, the Wuhan lab leak theory story and the origins of the COVID virus. And I'll give Trump some credit here, although he didn't do it particularly well. He was really the first major figure to come out there and say that, hey, look, uh, you know, this lab theory seems to make a lot of sense and that he believed that it was, in fact, from a, a lab leak, the, 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 you know, the, basically the, the virology lab in Wuhan, China, which imagine that, you know, studying viruses just like the coronavirus. You happen to have a lab right there. Uh, where this virus originated in the entire world. What an amazing coincidence. Didn't really take a rocket scientist to make that connection, especially when the alternative scenario was that it came from a bat in a, in a wet market down the street. Uh, you know, it, it, in retrospect, especially Trump was just ba- using basic logic and Trump got skewered. And there are literally dozens of examples of mainstream news media outlets mocking Donald Trump mainstream comedians mocking Donald Trump. I mean, everybody in the midst of the worst of the pandemic and the worst of the restrictions were attacking Trump for even suggesting that this could have been a situation that was created in a lab and then it either leaked uh, accidentally or on purpose. And of course, part of what was driving this, there was two things. One, Trump had no credibility and anything he was saying that would in any way, shape, or form uh, take the blame off of him was automatically seen as not credible. But also, there's a very scary pro-China or defense of China vein within the media. The fear of pissing off China or fear of appearing to be racist against China. Although I've never understood. I've never understood how it is. it is more racist against China or more anti-China to claim that this this virus escaped from a lab that studies these things than it would be to claim that the virus originated because of a wet market and a bat somehow infecting humans. I mean, to me, the bat theory is more racist than, than the lab theory, but okay, whatever. Uh, the point is that China didn't want that to be the case, probably because it was true. And whatever China wants, automatically there are elements of the news media that are going to leap to their defense for, for very concerning reasons. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But the bottom line here right now is that now that the energy department has said with a low level of confidence that the most likely scenario is that it leaked from a lab, and this dovetails with the FBI. Of course, it's funny now that Trumpers are all in favor of the FBI's conclusion when it comes to the lab leak, while other government agencies are not nearly as sure, and they still think the wet market theory has validity. By the way, isn't it possible that it could be both? Couldn't it have leaked from the lab to the wet market? I, I, I guess, I mean, I know, I know nothing about these things. I'm just trying to use basic common sense since they were right near each other. Uh, you know, you would theoretically think that was possible. And whenever there's a mystery like this where experts are divided, I'm always thinking, well, maybe it could be both. But anyway, I, it almost doesn't matter at this point because the perception and the reality is the media was wrong when they attacked Donald Trump and when they censored those who claimed that the lab leak theory was legitimate and needed to be looked into. Those people were effectively censored by the news media. One of many, many subjects on which the news media censored credible people who turned out to either be right or mostly right or plausibly right once all the facts were in. And so this forwards the narrative among the Trump cult that, see, Trump was right, even on a subject that should end any plausible rationale for a 2024 run. I mean, to me, it's other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? How Trump handled COVID is ultimately disqualifying to me. There are all sorts of things that should disqualify Donald Trump, including the fact that he can only run for one more term. He can only serve one more term constitutionally. That ought to be automatic disqualification right there because everyone else can serve two terms. And if Trump were to get elected, he would be an automatic lame duck. That should be disqualifying. But the whole COVID Fauci condemning Georgia for reopening, going back and forth on lockdowns, eventually caving on masks, being very, very, very pro-vaccine, even after the vaccines clearly do not stop transmission, all of that should be disqualifying. But in the minds of the Trump cult, it's not because he was right. He was the one that said that the lab leak theory was true. And now it appears as if he very well may have been correct. And at the very least, he was not obviously wrong as the news media had claimed that he was. Now, Republicans held a subcommittee hearing on COVID over the last couple of days. And I want to play you a couple of clips from a Dr. Marty McCary, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins. And he went to some school at Harvard, although not Harvard Medical School, but he's very well credentialed and he's very articulate. And wow, did he knock it out of the park on on two particular issues with regard to the to the uh, covid uh, response, specifically on the lab leak. All right. Just to give a little bit more meat on the bone of uh, this idea that the lab leak theory is is not crazy. In fact, it's the most logical McCary, Dr. McCary, does a much better job than I do in explaining what I would describe as the Occam's razor 
philosophy on the lab league. That it's just simply the most logical, it's the simplest, and that it's generally the right answer. That the wet market theory is much more complicated and convoluted and complex as to how that would happen. The lab leak theory is much more consistent with what we know. And he even alleges that it's obvious that there's a cover-up of the lab leak theory. And here was part of his testimony to a Republican subcommittee hearing on this topic. Thank you, Congresswoman. The reason this is even an issue is that it's embarrassing we funded the lab. If we had not funded the lab, 100% of Americans would say this is obvious, this is a no-brainer. The epicenter of the world is five miles from one of the only high-level virology labs in China. The doctors initially were arrested and forced to sign uh, non-disclosure gag documents. The lab reports have been destroyed. They've not been turned over. The sequences reported from the lab to the NIH database were deleted by a request from Chinese scientists that called over early on and said, delete those sequences we put in the database. And two leading virologists, maybe the two um, top virologists in the United States, Dr. Michael Farzan from Scripps and Dr. Robert Gary from Tulane, told Dr. Fauci on his emergency call in January of 2020 when he was scrambling soon after learning that the NIH was funding the lab, they both said that it was likely from the lab. Both scientists changed their tunes days later in the media, and then both scientists received $9 million subsequent in funding from the NIH. It's a no-brainer that it came from the lab. I mean, at this point... It's impossible to acquire any more information. And if you did, it would only be affirmative. Now, before I heard that clip, I I was in the category of, okay, it's probably the lab leak theory, but who knows for sure. That pushed me significantly towards the idea that, okay, it's the lab leak theory. That's what happened here. And, you know, whether that had any impact on whatever happened in the wet market, which there is there is some evidence surrounding the wet market. It's not a completely made up scenario or theory. Uh, I don't know. But that was compelling evidence. That was the best summary I've heard so far that it was, in fact, the lab leak that was the origin of the covid virus that caused all of this catastrophic death and all the other things that occurred in response to the COVID pandemic three years ago, almost exactly here in the United States of America. The second clip I want to play from Dr. McCary deals more directly with the U.S. government failures on every level when it came to COVID and specifically also the news media enabling the government. They went hand in hand in being wrong about virtually everything and to this day, being unwilling to admit it. And here's what that sounded like in Dr. McCary's testimony. The greatest perpetrator of misinformation during the pandemic has been the United States government. Misinformation that COVID was spread through surface transmission, that vaccinated immunity was far greater than natural immunity, that masks were effective. Now we have the definitive Cochrane review. What do you do with that review? Cochrane is the most authoritative evidence body in all of medicine and has been for decades. Do you just ignore it, not talk about it? 
that myocarditis was more common after the infection than the vaccine. Not true. It's four to 28 times more common after the the vaccine. That young people benefit from a booster. Misinformation. Our two top experts on vaccines quit the FDA in protest over this particular issue, pushing boosters in young, healthy people. The data was never there. That's why the CDC never disclosed hospitalization rates among boosted Americans under age 50. The vaccine mandates would increase vaccination rates. The George Mason University study shows it didn't. It did one thing. It created never vaxxers who are now not getting the childhood vaccines they need to get. Over and over again, we've seen something that goes far beyond using your best judgment with the information at hand. We've seen something which is unforgivable, and that is the weaponization of medical research itself. The CDC putting out their own shoddy studies, like their own study on natural immunity, looking at one state for two months, when they had data for years on all 50 states. Why did they only report that one sliver of data? Why did they salami slice the giant database? Because it gave them the result they wanted. Same with masking study. Well, the data has now caught up in giant systematic reviews, and the public health officials were intellectually dishonest. They lied to the American people. Thank you. Now, if you've ever listened to this podcast before, especially if you've listened to episodes number two and three, where we delve deeply into the entire COVID narrative and my counter narrative to how it is we got to and where we ended up, you know that this is a huge issue for me. And to me, it's shocking that it's not a huge issue for everybody. I'm fully acknowledging that I am in a minority, maybe a small minority of people to whom the COVID response is everything. There's almost nothing else that matters in the in certainly the last three years. And it's the biggest thing that's ever happened from a global perspective in my lifetime. And, and yes, it was partially because of the, the amount of death. The numbers of dead people is is astronomical. However, it's also deceiving because the vast majority of those people are rather old. The average age, depending on where you are in the world, was anywhere from 78 to 82. It doesn't make it right, doesn't make it good. You know, but all that really meant was that the vast majority of people who were dying with or of COVID were dying a few years earlier than was anticipated. And that sucks. It's terrible. However, there was not much we could do about it. What we did did almost nothing, obviously, because the death toll was greater than anyone, including Dr. Fauci, ever predicted by far at the beginning and caused enormous collateral damage. But I mean, I just want to go through my extensive list of all the things that they got wrong. And to me, there has to be some accountability here. Not just to make sure it doesn't happen again, which is hugely important. But this was a situation where the media and the so-called experts put all their chips down on this. All of them. And they were wrong almost every single time. 
And that means not only should there be accountability, but there should be a lack of trust going forward. And we should never, and especially in a panic situation, automatically just decide, you know what, we have to buy what the so-called experts are saying. And, you know, we can't have any contrarian thought. We have to curtail debate. We have to censor people who disagree because this is the only way forward. Otherwise, people are going to die. I've seen it happen in other stories. Very similarly, the Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky story. But when you're in a panic and the media works as one, look out. But let's just go through a list of the things where the media and the expert class, because they worked in tandem here, got it totally wrong. The first thing they got wrong, the death rate and the spread rate. The death rate, in other words, the percentage of people dying after they got COVID, turned out to be nowhere near what they were predicting. They were predicting 2 or 3% at the beginning of the pandemic. 2 or 3% for a virus that was easily transmitted is catastrophic. That is a massive catastrophe. That is an emergency of unprecedented uh, perspectives, of unparalleled level of death in a very short period of time. Well, that turned out to be wrong. That was a huge miscalculation, massive. And it may have been on purpose to scare the hell out of people. It turned out to be less than 1%. And depending on your demographic, way less than 1%. Way less than 1%. Similarly, they got the spread rate totally wrong. And I actually think this was the biggest and most obvious mistake at the beginning of the pandemic. I've mentioned before, we had two cruise ships that had no idea that COVID was coming, that got infected. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship, my God, based upon what they told us, Everybody on the cruise ship should have gotten COVID. They were quarantined all together, all breathing the same air in very confined spaces. And that didn't happen over an extended period of time. Did not happen. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Very few people on either of the two cruise ships, in comparison to what would have been expected, actually got COVID. And only a handful died. Doesn't mean it wasn't serious. Obviously, it was very serious. But they got the the rate of spread totally wrong which was the source for why things like outdoor events got canceled because they thought the thing was far 
more easily transmitted than it turned out to be. I believe early on, COVID was actually difficult to get. Now, in Omicron, it became much more easily transmitted, but it was nowhere near as deadly. So and that's the way every virus has always reacted in the history of viruses. But for some reason, we just decided to forget about that because this was novel. The novel, the word novel was such a huge word in all this as if somehow all the old rules were thrown out forever and ever, that this was unique. No, it was not unique. This worked similarly to every other virus. It was just more deadly than most, but not by that much from a percentage standpoint. But they got the death rate wrong, the spread rate wrong, outdoor transmission wrong. Remember when washing your hands was everything? Everything. That was everything, washing your hands. You know, they stopped that. You know why they stopped that? Because it turned out that didn't make any difference. But that was huge. That was one of the biggest things that was before masks, remember? Before they decided to go to masks, it was all about washing your hands. And then, of course, they got masks totally wrong, as Dr. Uh, McCary said, and I've said many, many times on this podcast, completely, totally wrong. And I can't even take you seriously as a human being if you still believe that mask mandates did anything to curtail the spread of COVID. I just can't. I cannot take you seriously. It's that obvious. It was always that obvious. The data is that overwhelming. It's just a religious artifact. That's what it is, the mask. And let me just add one other thing, which I don't add enough. The environmental impact of the mask mandates has got to have been catastrophic based upon what the environmentalists tell us about plastic straws. And we never hear one word about it. Not one word about the massive impact of all the trash that was created by these useless masks. But they got masks wrong. They got school closings wrong. They got sports closings wrong. They got the attack on Sweden and Florida and South Dakota, which which the media was obsessed with, obsessed with attacking Sweden and Florida and South Dakota. Got it totally wrong. In the end, those those uh, you know Sweden, Florida, and South Dakota did just fine, and in some ways they did way better than everybody else did, especially from an economic perspective. Meanwhile, San Francisco. The new study out has has recovered worse than almost any other place on the planet, at least in the United States, with regard to economics post-COVID shutdown and pandemic restrictions. The media got it totally wrong when it came to censorship. Censorship should never be normalized or accepted, especially by the news media of all places. But they facilitated censorship, and not only was it wrong to censor, the topics on which they censored usually turned out to be situations where those they were censoring were right. Not all, but on many occasions, those that were being censored were actually telling the truth. And the news media humiliated themselves on that. They also humiliated themselves when it came to suspending democracy. So many of these rules were not even created using democratic processes specifically here in California, which I'll get to in a moment because our state of emergency just ended after three years. The lab leak theory, which I've already gone into, they they got at least mostly wrong, especially when it came to censoring or mocking the other side. They got it wrong on immunity and how strong immunity was, especially in comparison 
to being vaccinated or boosted. They got it wrong on vaccine efficacy. They got it wrong on vaccine mandates. My God, the idea that we came within a whisker. We had our king slash governor here in California threatening that it was going to be required to take the vaccine uh, for COVID before being allowed into public schools. And then that finally quietly got, and eh, no, never mind. Because it was politically and even scientifically com- totally unviable. But there was no price to be paid for that. Heck, our governor got reelected with a huge majority against no real opposition. And we're still not sure whether or not they completely blew it on vaccine harm. But I, I they clearly have blown it on on at least addressing the issue of whether or not there's been significant vaccine harm. And we saw that, obviously, with the DeMar Hamlin reaction. Maybe the most underrated way in which they blew it, though, was on the most obvious way to respond to this. And that was the issue of who was most vulnerable. And the news media and our government, again, working hand in hand, completely ignored the two most obvious issues, age and obesity. Age and obesity were by far the two greatest risk factors. And there was almost no, especially early on, my God, it was it was a horrendous reaction, with, especially in New York with the nursing homes, to the issue of how vulnerable older people were. And there was never one word, and Trump blew it on this, because I believe if he had just said, I'm going to lose 35 pounds, and he did it, he would have won the election. If he had made public health a real priority in all this, if we had fought obesity, I mean, we had a golden opportunity to motivate people to finally lose weight in this country, and we didn't do it because Trump blew it. The health authorities blew it because they, it was a lot easier to just tell people to wear masks and wash your hands than to lose weight. And the news media, which hates offending fat people all the time because there's too many of them and they're too much of their their base customer support, never said anything about it. They let people die. I mean, my God, you you had plenty of time to lose weight from the time that we knew COVID was coming to the time that most people were exposed to it. And there was zero effort upon the part of the government and or the media to get people motivated to lose weight because they were afraid of offending viewers, listeners, readers, what have you. It was a catastrophic, monumental, fundamental failure on the part of the government and the media. And I guess the last thing I'll put on this list is just the general deification of experts in general, which kind of drove all this. I mean, the censorship was driven by the entire idea that there's there are experts who really know what's going on and they are not to be questioned. And Dr. Fauci is the ultimate expert. And it doesn't matter that these people keep being wrong time and time and time again. If you don't have the right degree and you don't have the right opinion and the, uh, and you're not accepted by the right club, then what you say doesn't matter. Even though most of the time it only took common sense to be right. That's all it took was common sense. I mean, I, there's a, I've had dozens and dozens of tweets from from the last three years where, you know, even I am totally right about things way ahead of government officials like our King Gavin Newsom, just by using basic common sense. But my opinion didn't matter because I'm a 
straight white conservative male presumed to be a Trump supporter who doesn't have the right college degree and isn't in the right club. And that's how this all got decided. And it resulted in massive amounts of damage, massive amounts of damage, especially here in California. Just this week, finally, our three-year emergency is over. We now, I guess, theoretically have democracy back again. And the reality is that there's been no accountability in the news media for Gavin Newsom for what he has done. All sorts of catastrophic results of his massive overreaction. And I've gone through it before, but it bears repeating now that the emergency is actually over. Here's the the thumbnail sketch of what happened with California and how it dictated so much else of what happened in the United States of America with regard to COVID response, because it was almost three years ago when after having declared a state of emergency, King Gavin Newsom declared a lockdown about three weeks later, three weeks after he declared his emergency, he declared the the lockdown. And so it's almost three years to the day that the emergency has finally ended. Why it ended the last day of February, I don't understand. It should have ended a lot earlier. But because of those emergency powers, King Gavin Newsom was able to make himself a monarch. And he ordered a lockdown. And when he ordered the lockdown, he wrote a letter to President Trump. By the way, in the letter, he requests a military ship be sent to Los Angeles to take care of all the excess patients that are going to be overflowing from the hospitals in the next few weeks because everyone's going to get COVID. And in the letter, he predicts and projects that over 25 million, 25 million Californians are going to get COVID in the next eight weeks. 25 million in the next eight weeks, which by the way, would be a catastrophe would absolutely be an emergency based upon the death rate that was projected at that time. That would have been hundreds of thousands of dead people in two months. Hundreds of thousands. That was the projection. Scary stuff. Nobody in the media except me pushed back. I wrote a a column immediately for Mediaite where I said, this is ridiculous. These projections are absurd. There's no possible way. No possible way we're going to even hit anything close to these numbers. And guess what? I was right. King Gavin was wrong. I got nothing but criticism for it. Newsom got zero criticism for it, even though he destroyed many, many, many lives, especially lives of school children, especially those who played sports, destroyed many, many businesses. You know what ended up happening? Instead of 25 million, by the way, his math didn't even add up. There was no way to to make his math actually work, even under his projections. Because I didn't, either he had a different uh, definition of how many people lived in California, or I, I I actually think he just got the percentages wrong. I mean, I think he's that dumb, and this was that rushed. But bottom line, he claimed over 25 million people were gonna get COVID in eight weeks. We are now three years into this thing, three years, and the total number of positive tests is 12 million, less than half. And by the way, that's not 12 million people because a lot of people test positive more than once, 
Many people test positive many, many times. So how many people that is, I don't know. But it's less than 10 million. Now, granted, there are a lot of people who get COVID who never test positive. But the reality is, three years later, nowhere near what Newsom projected in eight weeks. It was a lie. It was always a lie. And it was based upon this bogus concept of endless exponential growth. Endless exponential growth is the weapon that so-called scientists and the left use to do all sorts of crazy things, especially in the realm of climate science. There is a direct connection. It's exactly, this, even though it's a different subject, it's exactly the same type of people. It's exactly the same uh, modus operandi. It's exactly the same tactics. And endless exponential growth. That's the weapon. Uh-huh. See, you know, every every few days we're gonna have twice as many people get COVID as 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 we did before. And so the once the you know, they're gonna tell two friends and they're gonna tell two friends and two tell two friends, and this exponential growth is how this is all gonna happen. Well, that was based upon one, this the concept of endless exponential growth is inherently wrong. Things happen in cycles. And there's there's phenomena, and we saw this in India, where India had the, the most dramatic increase in cases anywhere in the world. And everyone thought, oh, my God, India's got such a large population, and, you know, those people are dirty there. That was the implication of the news media. And, and you know, all those poor people, my God, there's nothing's going to stop this. Everyone's going to get COVID and die. And then all of a sudden, as soon as it went to the sky, it dropped off a cliff. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Because of nature. Because of cycles. Because of things that we don't fully understand. So endless exponential growth in anything never happens. You're always going to see a reversal, whether it's because of natural cycles or you know, either good luck or bad luck, coincidences, what, or just things that are unexplained. And that's what happened all the time here. And so it was, it was a lie. It was meant to scare people. And it was based upon a misunderstanding, either purposeful or otherwise, of how transmittable the virus actually was. Again, early on, those cruise ships should have told us this thing is bad. This thing is dangerous, but it's actually not that easy to get. And the idea that outdoor events, including sporting events of young people and funerals and all sorts of other weddings got canceled for an extended period of time is just astonishing to me. And it's even more astonishing that there was never any accountability, no media blowback, no media evaluation, no three, you know, three years ended, 
Now, not one story did I see in local Los Angeles media or in California media seriously evaluating, okay, so how the heck did we do? Was this all worth it? What's the damage? I mean, California is now facing massive budget deficits that Newsom didn't anticipate. I mean, there's all sorts of businesses that have gone uh, by the wayside because of the response to COVID. But I think even more importantly than that, I I believe that the entire essence and soul of the country has been ripped apart because this was who we were supposed to be. We were supposed to be the land of freedom and liberty and bravery. And when it came down to it, we were everything but. And those that perpetrated this have suffered zero consequences, zero. And the media is a large part of that because they've enabled it because they have blood on their hands just as much as the leadership that failed. And they don't want to admit that. And they're lousy at looking at the past anyway. It's always about the future. I mean, everything in the media is about the future. I mean, it's it's in every element of the news media. I mean, there'll be far more, you know, the coverage uh, of the Republican presidential nominating process is going to be millions and millions and millions of hours. And then once it's all over, there's going to be 15 minutes of evaluation. It's like the Super Bowl. You know, there's there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of TV hours on on the, the draft combine and then 15 minutes about who won the Super Bowl and then it's on to who's going to win it next year, as my wife always says. So the past is never of any interest to in the news media for whatever reason, especially in the modern era. But this is huge. You would think that this would at least qualify to for a few stories on, hey, how this all turn out? Was this worth it? Did we do the right thing? Were the authorities right? Could the media have handled this differently? Nothing. Nothing. And and until this week, there's not been one major lockdown person in the in the political realm that suffered any kind of consequences at all. Interestingly, and I kind of predicted this on the blaze just before the midterm election, I said there was going to be this weird phenomenon where pro-lockdown governors are going to not be punished and anti-lockdown governors like DeSantis and Kemp in Georgia are going to be rewarded because people become invested in whatever path they took. They don't want to believe that their suffering was for nothing and they don't want to believe that their risk wasn't validated. And that's the way it was being portrayed. And that's what the results were. All almost in universally. That's exactly what happened. Well, in Chicago, though, and I'm not sure that COVID had anything directly to do with this, but it was certainly part of the narrative. Chicago just had a shocking result where their incumbent mayor, a black female by the name of Lori Lightfoot, who is an absolute moron, got crushed. In a, in a primary race for re-election as the mayor of Chicago. She only got 17% of the vote. She did not finish in the top two. So she is out as an incumbent mayor in Chicago. I mean, she'll still be the, the mayor, but she's not going to win re-election. And uh, that is a stunning, crushing defeat. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that, again, including the fact that she's a moron. Uh, and you know she was she's been on the wrong side of almost every issue. Uh, it looks like she's the Bears are going to move out of Chicago, and in a in a press release about the Chicago Bears potentially moving Soldier Field out of Chicago, she misspelled the word Soldier. <laughs> I mean, that's just one example of many of what an absolute moron she is. But she was also a lockdown queen, and so it was nice to see that she 
she got defeated in a significant way. Whether that had anything to do with the COVID response, I don't know. But uh, she is now in the dustbin of history, and Chicago will probably be better off for it. All right. So, I mean, I'm sure that's not the last word on the COVID response, but three years into this state of emergency that's now officially over, uh, I figured it was worth a little bit of revisiting, especially since almost on a daily basis, we're, we're now learning just how wrong the experts really were. And again, it's a lot about, you want to talk about the future, are we ever going to do this again? And are we going to fall for it when it comes to global warming, climate change? Because it's exactly the same playbook. Exactly. Now, I promised at the beginning, uh, or maybe I threatened, I'm not sure, I pro- <laughs> at the beginning of the podcast, that I would go into the live golf controversy and that there's a direct connection between the live golf controversy and the presidential election, especially on the Republican side, which I'll explain. And I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'm always hesitant to talk about topics that um, that I really feel very passionately about because I feel like maybe I'm not uh, properly evaluating the public's interest. And so I've been hesitant to talk about live golf because I am a golfer myself. I played golf uh, on the varsity at uh, Georgetown University, which at the time was not particularly great school of golf, but we were decent. We were in the middle of the Big East. And, you know, I've played in national amateur championships. I've won four club championships around the country. I'm about a one or two handicapper. And I have uh, followed very closely and covered at times uh, professional golf my entire life. In fact, the first job I ever really got fired from was with the PGA Tour. And I knew I was going to get fired the first day I was on the job there. I was working for PGA Tour Productions. It's my second real job out of college, at least within the media realm. And I had a completely naive view of what the job at PGA Tour Productions was to me. Uh, And this was back in the early 90s. This was, as I said, Pontra Vida, Pontra. Pedra Beach, Florida, outside of Jacksonville or within Jacksonville. And uh, the headquarters for the PGA Tour was there. I moved down there to work on PGA Tour Productions, which at the time was basically focused on one show called Inside the PGA Tour that aired on ESPN on a weekly basis. And I thought I was going to go down there to do stories about golf. (laughs) And boy, was I dumb and naive. That's not what the PGA Tour Productions unit was about. The PGA Tour Productions unit was basically the propaganda unit for, uh, you know, this political entity called the PGA Tour. And it's a long story that maybe I'll get into some other point, but I didn't last long there. I called my father the first day I was there. He said, Dad, this isn't going to work. There's no possible way I'm going to last here. This was on the first day I was on the job. And I don't even remember exactly how long. It was not more than six weeks that I was there before I ended up getting fired. In fact, part of the the perks of working there was that you were a member at TPC Sawgrass, which is the home of the Players' Championship. Next week, they'll play the Players' Championship there. And and so I think I played more rounds of golf at the the TPC course (laughs) uh, because it was all free, and I was basically a member there while I was there than I did – uh, do anything substantively as far as days of work. I mean, I'm not sure about that, but that's my recollection. So it was a complete disaster because, as you know, 
my mentality is is not to be part of a propaganda unit. And that's what PGA Tour Productions was about. And the reason why this is significant is because I clearly have absolutely no love for the PGA Tour. I understand what the PGA Tour is, and so I'm no sycophant for the PGA Tour. But the PGA Tour has been under siege. It's been enduring a massive attack from what is called the Live Golf Tour. And the Live Golf Tour is funded by the Saudi Arabian government, effectively. And it's being headed by Greg Norman, former great golfer, although great underachiever, most well-known for choking in big events. And their most famous players are people like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson and Cameron Smith, who just won the British Open last year. And basically what they have done is they've paid exorbitant, absurd amounts of money for people to leave the PGA Tour to come play on what's called the, the Live Tour. And uh, I hate this. I hate this at every level, even though I have no love for the PGA Tour and I, I have big problems with even some of the ways that the PGA Tour has reacted to this. I hate live in every possible way. And it's not because necessarily that it's funded by Saudi Arabia. I don't like that. It's obviously a PR maneuver by a corrupt Saudi Arabian regime. Some people call it sports washing. I don't like it, um, but that's not why I hate it. Why I hate live is because of what it's doing to the game of golf at the highest level. Specifically, it's fragmenting the game. It's taking away the ability for all the players to play in one place at the same time, more than just a couple times a year. Uh, but more importantly than that, there's just too much damn money in the game now. I think money has destroyed. I think money destroys everything, but too much money has destroyed sports at every level. And golf had been somewhat immune to that until now because it was a meritocracy. And even if you made a lot of money, even Tiger Woods, who had more money than he could possibly even spend, even after a massive divorce, still was driven by things that had nothing to do with money. It was by le about legacy and winning championships and how many majors he would win and whether he would reach Jack Nicholas's untouchable record. And obviously, nothing ever diminished Tiger Woods' drive, literally or figuratively. But I mean, I mean his his desire to to work hard and be the best that he possibly could be. And so, even though a few golfers would be in the realm of super rich, it never really seemed to impact their desire or the essence of the contest. But now that's all changed because now. Live has, in, has created a set of circumstances where the players have all the leverage, and now the PGA Tour purses are increasing dramatically. They were already insane. And now there's so much money going around that, frankly, I don't understand how anyone cares about anything. And a large part of the essence of the game of golf is fear. Overcoming fear is a big part of it. There, you know, fear is, fear is an incredible motivator, but watching someone play golf at the highest level while dealing with fear, to me, has always been entertaining. Now, a couple of things have eliminated fear. One, technology has eliminated fear. The technology has destroyed the game, in my opinion, at the highest level, because it's just too easy for these guys. I mean, they're amazing. They're, they're incredible athletes. And yes, in the modern era, the post-Tiger era, they are athletes. But the reality is that the 
there's no possible way for the modern courses to keep up. The ball goes too far. The drivers are too forgiving. The irons are too precise. I mean, technology in every possible way has basically eliminated a lot of the fear. But even on a global perspective, now the money has eliminated fear. I mean, back in the day, even Jack Nicholas, uh, you know, Arnold Palmer was the first person to drive around or fly around from event to event in a plane. But even that was not a particularly, by today's standards, impressive plane. But even Jack Nicholas in the day, you know, if, if he missed a cut, which wouldn't happen too often, but occasionally, I mean, he'd have to drive himself and his family to the next next tour stop in many cases. Uh, or, or at the very best, you were flying coach. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, on a commercial airliner. And the money actually mattered. Not, you know, it wasn't going to mean whether you lived or died or you couldn't feed your family or meet your mortgage, but at least it mattered. You were living basically a normal real life, even at the highest level, even the top players. And so it really mattered. Today, with all the money that's going around, if you're one of the star players and you miss a cut, here's what the consequences are. You get to go home on your private first-class jet to your super hot wife in your palatial beachfront estate uh, and you're, you know, if you have kids, you're beautiful kids. I, okay, what's the downside on that? <laughs> what's the, oh, oops, I missed the cut. I'm going to get home to have sex with my hot wife in my, in my mansion. Uh, that Boy, that sucks. That, that's, there's no fear in that. And, and, and it's not just a couple of players that fit into that category now. It's almost everybody at the top level of the game, especially post live. So there's this battle going on between live and the PGA Tour, and I've been rooting hard for Liv to collapse or to go away or to or to implode as quickly as possible. And I've actually thought it was a pretty reasonable chance that that was going to happen. And I'm going to get to the, the presidential element of this in a moment. But this past weekend, from a media perspective, was really the first time that there was uh, the ability to make a comparison between how Liv is doing and how the PGA Tour is doing. Because Liv finally signed a TV deal. Now, they signed a terrible TV deal with the CW network, which is not on in every major market in the country. And the, the stations are not known for live programming, certainly not known for sports programming. They're not one of the major networks, uh, unlike golf, which is usually on on NBC or on CBS and obviously has the golf channel as its its base of, of viewership. And so this past weekend, the PJ Tour had one of its worst events, the Honda Classic, where none of the stars were playing. And Liv started its brand new season and its first broadcast on the CW. And the ratings comparison was a complete disaster for Liv. Live averaged less than 300,000 viewers for the two days that it was on television. The first day isn't even on television. It's on their app. 
but it's only on the weekends of the three-day events that Liv plays. And that's part of why I hate Liv, because Liv is, talk about eliminating fear. They only play three rounds. They have no cuts. It's only 48 players. The money is guaranteed. Uh, They get paid up front. Uh, I mean, this team concept, I don't even understand why anyone cares anything about it. I hate everything about it. Uh, and I think those that play on it are total sellouts and especially the European players who for years and years talked about how important the Ryder cup is. And it's all about camaraderie and country and continent. And they just gave all that up for a few extra million dollars that they didn't really need anyway. So nationwide live averaged less than 300,000 viewers on the CW, even for their final round. Less than 300,000 nationwide. Meanwhile, the PGA Tour in its final round had over 2 million viewers on NBC. So it was about seven times as many people watched the worst PGA Tour event probably of the year on network television in comparison to who watched the first event, which had a lot of hype involved surrounding it, of the Live Tour on their first event that was televised live on the CW network. Now there are those that are trying to spin it. It's amazing to me. (laughs) There are elements of the media that are, are pro live golf. The golf media is the worst media there possibly ever could be. I've said this many times before, but it's largely because it's too cushy a gig. That's why the golf media is terrible. And it's why it's significant for understanding the media in general. I've said this constantly that because the gigs are too soft too easy, too cushy. No one wants to risk those jobs. And that's when you get bad media coverage because in order to have good journalism or good media coverage, you have to take risks from time to time and no one wants to take any risks. And everybody who covers golf knows it's the cushiest gig on the planet and no one wants to risk it. But anyway, Liv has actually gotten, I think, some pretty soft media coverage, except on the Golf Channel, where they're very much incentivized to protect their partner, the PGA Tour. Elsewhere within the golf media realm, there are those who are still trying to apologize for this horrendous ratings result with regard to Liv's first broadcast on the CW. But to me, this now has the stench of death on it, because it's not going to get any better for, for the Liv Tour. I mean, they're going to have tougher competition down the road. This, they're not going to have the same level of hype. Their players are going to continue to tank in the world rankings because you don't get any world ranking points for live events because they don't qualify, nor should they. It's only 54 holes. There's no cut. It's a shotgun start. There's limited fields. It's basically a, a member guest at your local club with just famous players or semi-famous players. And so... Um, I really think that now Liv is in big trouble. Now, why? Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to go away because it might have unlimited funds. I mean, what we don't know about this is, are the Saudis really in this for a profit or they are just in this for a kamikaze attack against the PGA Tour? I don't know. There are those who have claimed that the Saudi Arabians really believe that they're going to make a profit from this. If that's true, if the Saudi Arabians were somehow duped into thinking that they could make a profit in any you know short period of time from live golf, given the billions of dollars that they put into this, one, they are incredibly dumb, and two, Greg Norman is going to disappear. 
I mean, that's going to, I mean, seriously, that is what's going to, he's going to, they're going to go Khashoggi on Norman. If he was really somebody who convinced them that they were going to make a profit here. I have never believed that because I can't believe they would be that stupid because there was no way Liv was going to make a profit spending this kind of money. So, you know, they obviously have the money to keep doing this as long as they want if they don't care about making a profit. If they they keep spending this money, then obviously Liv can't go away because it has unlimited supply of cash. If this really is about a profit, they're done because there's no possible way that the Saudis can make their money back with people uh, with a product that only gets 300,000 viewers on their, their final round of their first event of the year going up against the worst competition that they possibly could on the PGA Tour. They're done. It's over. Stick a fork in them. Stench of death. But as far as the presidential race is concerned, and I do find this significant on a couple different levels. Number one, three live events this year are played on Donald Trump golf courses. Three. And that means live, that means Saudi Arabia, is paying Donald Trump a significant amount of money, probably in the realm of millions of dollars, to be able to use his course to play their event there. So three live events are on Trump courses. Now, in the pre-Trump era, and I mean this very sincerely, in the pre-Trump era, if there was ever a situation where the Republican frontrunner for the presidential nomination owned a property that was making millions of dollars from a public event that was chosen to be there by the Saudi Arabian government, that would be a disqualifier. At the very least, that would be a major news story and a potential scandal because you have a massive conflict of interest. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me that the government of Saudi Arabia is is choosing to do events at a venue owned by a Republican presidential frontrunner and paying that person millions of dollars without it being fully disclosed? And... That's not a massive conflict of interest? A massive conflict of interest. But of course, we don't care about those things anymore. <laughs> Trump has desensitized us to the level where that doesn't even make an impact anymore. I mean, I tweeted that out a few weeks ago and no one, no one even understood what I was talking about. I mean, that, that is just a fact. That is a major campaign problem in a rational world, pre-Trump world, where these kinds of things still mattered. That is totally inappropriate. Yet, I doubt that even on anyone on Fox News Channel will will confront uh, Trump about it. In fact, Fox News Channel was used to help promote Live. Tucker Carlson was duped, I believe, by Trump into coming to a Live event, interviewing Greg Norman and others that are related to the Live tour, and basically promoting Live on Fox News Channel. I asked Tucker about this as gently as I could via text and Tucker acknowledged, yeah, he probably shouldn't do sports topics because he doesn't know that much about it. That's, I think that's almost directly what he told me. Well, Tucker was used by Trump. Trump was actively using Fox news channel to promote the live tour, which is paying him money via the Saudi Arabian government. I'm sorry. That shouldn't matter, especially to Republicans, but, but it doesn't. So that's the first element of this. The second element of this is, bizarrely, the live PGA Tour battle has taken on 
not I wouldn't call it a proxy war, but it would it's certainly symbolic of the entire Trump versus the rest of the world phenomenon. And what I mean by that is it is remarkable how many people, at least online, that are live supporters are also Trump supporters. And it's largely because Trump has signaled his support for the live tour for obvious reasons, because he has this financial conflict of interest. And, um, you know, they're obviously they're playing in his courses. And so he's been promoting live. And so members of the Trump cult see that. And so they have also become live fans and at times also been very, very critical of the PGA tour. Well, the fact that the numbers of viewers for the live tour are so pathetic, less than 300,000 is certainly not a perfect by any stretch of the imagination indication of where the Trump cult is as far as numbers, but it's not exactly a good data point if you're the Trump people, because Trump has given his overt endorsement to live and the PGA tour is still dominating in the ratings numbers, the live tour, and it's not even close. And so if I'm trying to find some semblance of hope that maybe the Trump cult can be contained and that somehow this whole situation can be rectified without a bloody civil war, I guess that's some semblance of hope. It's not a lot, but it's some. Because if the Trump cult was really as big and as powerful as it once was, I got to believe that Liv would be doing better in the ratings, because let's be clear, I mean, golf is obviously Trump's demographic, right? Golfers are generally white male Republicans, not exclusively, certainly not anymore, but by and large, that's still true. And the fact that the PGA Tour is kicking the crap out of live is not a great data point uh, for Donald Trump. All right, that'll do it for this episode number 37 of the Death of Journalism podcast. As is always the place, uh, always the case, please subscribe, rate, and review this episode, especially if you like it. And please tell a friend if you do, because obviously the news media is never going to publicize this for us. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Death of Journalism podcast. The Death of Journalism is a Workhouse Connect, John Ziegler production. Executive producer, Mike Agavino, with our hosts, Liz Abib and John Ziegler. You can find The Death of Journalism wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, please give us a five-star rating and review. Please join our Twitter community, The Death of Journalism. Thanks for listening. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.